Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, you and I are recording this in the waning days of 2022. It's not even the new year yet, and yet the year already feels long. (laughs) I know. I'm tired. (laughs) Well, I thought that our listeners deserve some inspiration. And so that's what this episode that they're about to hear really brings. But I also thought this would be a good opportunity to preview some of the things that we have in store in the coming year because I'm pretty excited about some of them. So I'm going to list off a few episodes we have in the works, including one on the science of reading. People are really looking forward to that. Then there's one on the rise and fall of the teaching profession. And I know that you in particular are looking forward to that. We've got something about community schools and some more that I can't remember. Well, don't forget that we want our graduate student listeners to be sending us their submissions for the graduate student research contest. We won't pick a winner for many months, but that will also be on tap for 2023. So if you're a graduate student, uh, go on to the website, haveyouheardpodcast.com. Uh, and you can find the tab for contest. It's extremely easy to enter and pretty cool to win. Now on to the substance of this episode. We thought that it would be really cool to bring you some voices that frankly we haven't been hearing enough of lately and those would be the voices of high school students. Yeah, we've certainly been hearing a lot from adults about the vision of school that they have and that they would like to advance. Plenty of parents' rights advocates out there insisting that they ought to have more control over what's going on in our schools. It's about time to hear from some young people themselves about what they would actually like to be happening both inside of school and out. Well, the students that we're going to be hearing from are in my favorite state. That is Michigan, of course. Um, Probably the subject of more episodes than any other single state in in the U.S. And they happen to be part of an organization that also has one of the best acronyms I've come across. The full name is Detroit Area Youth Uniting Michigan. What would that acronym be, Jack? Damn. This episode was inspired by a conversation I had with some Michigan students in the lead up to the midterms. I was writing a story for the nation about the possibility that Michigan could tip blue. Spoiler, it did. And while the adults I interviewed were warily hopeful, the high school students I talked to were absolutely convinced that something big was in the offing and that young people were going to be the drivers of that change. I couldn't wait to find out more. Sid Althoff is a student representative on the Mona Shore School Board south of Muskegon. That's on the west side of the state. She's also an organizer with Detroit Area Youth Uniting Michigan. Sid says she wasn't at all surprised by the outcome of the election and that we shouldn't have been either. Within the school board culture wars with people like 
me and people that are at DAM and a lot of youth my age, my entire generation, really, we are not afraid to confront the issues that we're facing. And we're not afraid to set up a meeting with our principal. We're not afraid to talk back to our teacher. We're not afraid to get involved with our parents, have conversations with our older family members about it. Nothing's really off the table anymore. Because of that, adults are afraid. Adults are afraid of the power that we want. Adults are afraid of the power that we already have and the power that we are trying to get right now. There have always been conservative parents trying to ban books, conservative parents trying to, you know, remove sex ed or keep sex ed from entering their schools. But what we're really seeing right now is people seeing the power that young voters have, the power that young people have that can't even vote yet. Now, if you're a regular listener to the pod, you know that we get tons of story ideas from our listeners, but we also get suggestions about things to read. And as I was putting this episode together, a listener from Iowa dropped me a line to suggest that I check out a new book called Democracy's Child, Young People and the Politics of Control, Leverage, and Agency by political scientists Allison Gash and Dan Tickner. It's a fascinating read, all about the central but largely unanalyzed role that young people play in our politics, as symbols and subjects, but also as agents. As they show, young people have been agents of political change in every decade, but they're also crucial subjects of adult control in one policy area after another, an observation that will come as no surprise to Sid. There's always racism, classism, but there's also something that I learned about this past summer called adult supremacy, which is just the idea that adults automatically know more, have more experience, and are therefore better equipped to deal with the situation, which is the only form of oppression that someone can grow out of because you're only a youth for a certain amount of time. And then all of a sudden you hit around 25 and, you know, maybe you're not in this youth camp anymore. Take, for example, reproductive justice, the issue that Sid is most passionate about. Adults are enacting policies that will have a profound impact on Sid and her generation. A lot of the laws that are coming up about parental consent, which is something that we're still fighting to have abolished, and just transportation and things about crossing state lines, all of these things so directly attack, of course, minority groups, low-income people, but just youth, because even the richest, most privileged youth still might not be able to get transportation to go and get these services. And they need parental consent to have procedures done. They need parental consent to even go to a doctor's visit. On the other side of the state, Hafiza Kalik is a student organizer in Detroit, where she is a senior at Cass Technical High School. Her activism journey began back in 10th grade when she logged onto a school board meeting to share her thoughts about COVID, safety, and student mental health. That got her connected with Detroit Area Youth Uniting Michigan, of which she is now the chair. So they asked how many students were vaccinated. So it was like a simple yes or no poll. And the agreement was that if 70% of students were vaccinated, then they would do free dress for all students. Free dress, as in students at CAS wouldn't have to abide by the strict dress code governing, say, what kind of pants they can wear or what color shirts are okay. Students at CAS hit that vaccination target, which meant they no longer had a dress code. For student activists like Hafiza, that only raised more questions about the policy. They allowed this for one school. It took students being vaccinated 
to get them to remove restrictions on our dress code, which shows that it didn't really affect our learning in the first place if they could just easily remove this. And we started talking and we were like, this is what we should work on. So Hafiza and her peers started a campaign to eliminate the uniform and dress code policy. They hosted virtual events, started a petition, researched other districts in Michigan and beyond, and they solicited feedback from Detroit students. Hafiza says that some central themes popped up again and again. First of all, the policing of it, right? Students are constantly getting pulled out of class, they're being suspended, all because they're out of uniforms. Second of all, they're not really as affordable as what people would say, that it would erase the distinction between lower class and upper class and how it would erase those financial barriers for families, which was not my case because I grew up in poverty and I could not even afford uniforms either. And so it's not like you can just use one uniform, right? You'd have to have multiple. You can't wear one uniform for an entire week. So it's like that argument was not firm at all. It was kind of like all those reasons and the consequences that came from those reasons that like really made us wonder, like this, this is not okay and students should not be forced to dress in the same way, essentially as if they're all one person, a robot. For Hafiza, who also serves as the organizing fellowship coordinator at Student Voice, a national student-led call to action for more equitable schools, the push to overhaul the dress code was also personal. There was one comment that specifically stood out to me, and it was someone who commented that they knew this little girl who wanted to wear her cultural clothes to school, but she couldn't because of the uniform. And that like really broke my heart because... For me, like because I was forced to wear the uniform growing up, one, I felt uncomfortable with my body. And two, I I started to shame my culture. I started to hate wearing my own cultural clothing. So I stopped wearing my cultural clothing for a while. And I thought it would be embarrassing to wear it because I didn't see anyone wearing it at school. All that organizing? Well, it worked. When the revised student code of conduct came out this fall, many of the dress code provisions that the students were most unhappy about were gone. Now the students are fighting to make sure that the new language is enforced. Back on the other side of the state, Sid has been cheering on her peers in Detroit, and she says that there's a common thread that connects all of the issues that are so central for young people right now. The way that this kind of all connects to what youth are fighting for right now is, again, just that fear. There is a fear that they are losing control and things are becoming more and more strict regulations as we're coming, as my school keeps saying, you know, back to normal after COVID. We're coming in full throttle after COVID. Well, you know, it's not just that things have changed and that students have changed. It's that doors are open now for us to keep talking about what we care about and we are going to get what we want. And they can't just close those doors. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to push back by saying, oh, here, you know, we'll take um, these words out of the code of conduct or we'll let you sit on this committee. But it's one thing to physically have a seat at the table because I physically have a seat at a lot of tables. Um, I'm the student representative of my school board. I know that my principal's office is an open door to me. She's always willing to listen to me. But I do not really have a seat at the table. A seat at the table. Remember those words because we will be hearing more about what that means for these student activists later in the episode. But for now, just know that to Sid, it means more than just having a voice. They might hear me speak, but they're not really listening. 
And they're hearing me out so that I don't get more angry and stage a walkout at school. They're hearing me out so that I don't get people to skip count day. They're hearing me out so that I just drop it, basically. That's just how it all ties in for me personally, because every time that I feel like I've gotten some kind of a win, specifically on my school word, it feels like I'm just being shut up. It feels like I'm getting this like tiny nugget of a thing. Sure, we invited you to the sex ed advisory board meeting, but I'm going to schedule it on this day that I know that you have something else. There's a lot of school boards in Michigan um, that have student representatives or have like a student like advisory council or something like that. But maybe that's just to say that they're listening to student voice. And maybe the intention is not right there. And maybe those students aren't actually being listened to. So Jack, one of the things that I so enjoyed about getting the chance to talk to these high school activists in Michigan is that in many ways you can understand exactly what the right is so worried about. Here these students are looking around them, taking in the world that has been handed down to them by adults and deciding, you know what, this is intolerable. We are not going to just sit and let this you know, be our fate. Mm. Here we go. <laughs> and and that, you know, in some ways that's so inspiring. But I'm also guessing that this is a really old dynamic. Both the students becoming activists in this way, but also adults trying to figure out like what the hell is going on and what can we do about it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um I went back and started looking at what adults were saying uh, back in the late 1960s and early 70s, right? When um, we see a big spike in campus activism. This was in higher education for the most part. Um, but you have folks really running around trying to figure out what's gotten into the young people. If you look at some of the scholarship from the period, um, there are lots of arguments that essentially activism from young people and particularly students is the norm, not the exception, right? That, that periods when young people aren't engaged and aren't more radical than their, you know, adult or non-youth, non-student counterparts, that those are the exception, those periods. And I found a great RAND report written by the sociologist and political scientist Seymour Martin Lipset, and he was trying to explain, uh, this is around 1968, trying to explain student activism. And he offers, I think, a really compelling account here. And I think it's especially interesting given the time period in which he was writing. Um, and I think it still holds up today, right? So one of the things he argues there is that young people don't have the same kinds of existing political commitments that older folks have, right? They aren't inculcated into a political worldview necessarily. They haven't adopted party platforms in the same way. So as he writes, um, that gives them, quote, free reign to adhere to absolute principles, to engage in expressive rather than instrumental politics. And I think that piece is so interesting, right? That, that they're not trying to win elections. And that's definitely something that we see from young people and this really important role that they play, that it's not about angling for an advantage in a two-party system. It's about angling for an advantage in a system that, uh, you know, you would be perfectly fine undermining in pursuit of moral commitments and Lipset writes that you know those moral commitments ironically and I don't I don't know that he saw it as ironic but um, those moral commitments come from 
the societies that those young people are coming of age in, right? He says, societies teach youth to adhere to the basic values of the system in absolute terms. And I think that is also so interesting, right? That young people aren't drawing on something that, you know, is only available to them. They're drawing on values and beliefs and, you know, moral concerns that are inherent to the societies of which they are a part. And they actually believe a lot of the things that their elders have been saying. And because they believe in those things, they are outraged when they look around and they see the absence of any you know, real effort to advance those fundamental beliefs. Um, well, Jack, so- first of all, can I just say that I just love the image that once again, we have sent you scurrying back deep into the archives to dredge up a RAND report from the 60s. <laughs> <laughs> I I am curious about the focus on higher ed. I know that that, that has been uh, an area of near obsession on the right that, you know, they have been saying for decades that basically the left has captured higher education. And in many ways, it seems like they feel like college students are lost to them. But I'm curious about whether you saw anything in that report about high school specifically, or just, you know, in a more general sense, is did you pick up on concern that, that high school kids were going bad? Yeah, one of the things that I think is really interesting to think about is who has time to engage in this kind of activism. And that was one of the things that Lipset and other scholars of the period were writing about was, you know, look at these college students. They've got all day to do this. Some of them have stopped attending their classes and basically become professional activists. And the difference between, let's say, a Berkeley undergraduate and your local high school student is that local high school student is still living with their parents, right, in the vast majority of cases. And their days are pretty tightly prescribed, right? There's no like, well, I'm blowing off my 1 p.m. lecture, right? And I'm going to go to the big rally in the quad. I think what this speaks to is a period in which young people see an even greater gap between what ought to be and what actually exists, right? So I think that as you see them making more effort and perhaps greater sacrifice in order to be politically active, right? It's a signal that they are even more outraged between this gap, uh, you know, where on the one hand they have been told there are fundamental values in this country, right? That people have fundamental rights, that there are principles that we collectively pursue as a society. And then on the other hand, right? Well, here's what we're actually doing, right? Here are the policies that we are actually driving forward, and here's what the adult, uh, you know, society is doing about it. Um, I think that it is one way of explaining why some folks, myself included, are so inspired by high school age activism, right? Because it, it takes a lot more, um, and it actually comes at a time when it's even more badly needed. Thank you for that, Jack. Now back to our special guests. So what Jack was just describing about how being a high school activist is actually really hard. 
Well, there's no one who understands that like Julia Cuneo. She started Detroit Area Youth Uniting Michigan, or DAM, and a big part of what motivated her was her own experience as an activist. She had a lot of opinions about what needed to change at her Michigan high school, including a dress code. And she would express those opinions through anger at her teachers, at her peers, at the school board which turned out to be not just an ineffective strategy for changing minds, but it also left Julia feeling so isolated and unhappy that she ended up dropping out of school. She says that it wasn't until college that she began to understand that effective organizing is not about one person saving the world, but a collective enterprise, something that came as a revelation. I wish I'd had these tools as a high school student. You know, I wish that when I had been talking back to my teacher and showing up at board meetings really angry. I still have the the letter I wrote to my my school board about the dress code, that I had turned this into a collective movement and had known how to do that. When I graduated college, I was like, that's what I'm going to do. I want to just work with high school students who are similarly angry to me, similarly wanting to take action and support them in doing it in a way that doesn't cause them to drop out and lose all their friends and, you know, hate the world the way that I did at 17. And since 2018, that is exactly what Julia has been doing, helping support students like Sid and Hafiza as they demand change both inside and outside of their schools. It's also why she was not at all surprised by the results of the midterm elections in Michigan. I think that the day after the election and the the follow-up to that, where everyone else was freaking out and going, where did all these young voters come from, was really funny for me and a lot of the damn alumni, because we were like, we told y'all this was going to (laughs) happen. Like, if you think about those young people who were voting, some of them for the first time, they experienced the March for Our Lives walkouts. They led the climate strikes. They were part of the COVID response. They lost their senior year to the pandemic. And they are pissed off and ready to fight back and take their power back. We see the impact of that in the vote, in the election, that when young people have spent you know, the last four or five years taking action in the, at the high school level, direct action. It's not electoral. They can't vote, but they are building their own power and building their own analysis. Then when they do have the power to vote, they make a really, really widespread impact. This fall, the group launched a campaign to lower the voting age so that high school students can weigh in on school board elections that carry so much weight in their day-to-day lives. Here's Hafiza again. The bigger change that we want to see is for young people to get the right to vote. And we are working to get the voting age lower to 16 for school board elections. We can do so much from the outside. We can organize, we can protest, we can write letters, we can write emails, we can hold meetings. But do we actually have a seat at the table if we cannot threaten our vote? If we don't have some sort of power in holding them from getting reelected into their positions, then they will listen to the parents that don't agree with critical race theory. They will listen to homophobic parents. They will listen to parents who are saying, no, we should not have sex education into our school curriculum. The lesson that Hafiza and other students took away from the midterms was that young people have the power to shape elections and policy, and they are not alone in reaching that conclusion. There are people who are calling for the voting age to be increased to 21, right? Which is like, wow, 
it shows that they believe that young people have power. They believe that if young people had the power to vote, had the access to get to their polling place, had all the information on their ballot, then they would not vote in favor of people who are trying to control these elections. And so it's so clear to see that like now we're pushing for the voting age to be lowered. They don't want that. And there's a reason that they don't want that because they don't want to lose control. And they know that young people have the power, have the resources and the tools to do this. The red wave that we were promised did not come because of young people. And I think that what they should be afraid of is that we've had a few trial runs, I'll say, with the last few elections. And we've been pushing the envelope a little bit, getting small wins here and there, getting some really big wins also. But the more that this generation is able to vote, and as we lower that voting age, which is something that I do believe will happen with enough support, conservatives will not win another election in terms of policy because they're not representing what youth care about and they're not representing things that are beneficial to youth and things that help people like me and things that help people like Afiza. Now, when I spoke to Sid this fall, she told me something that really stayed with me. When we were talking about the various efforts underway to limit what kids can learn and what teachers can talk about, she said that, quote, the kids are a lot less afraid than the adults are. They absolutely should be afraid because we are coming for these racist, sexist, archaic ideas that are still in place. And maybe that's what they're comfortable with. But just because that's what they're comfortable with does not mean that is right. And that does not mean that we're just going to continue to just be a cog in the machine and just, you know, continue on with what's been happening for decades. Sid obviously wasn't old enough to vote in the last election, but she worked really hard to convince people who could vote to send Democrat Hillary Skolton to Congress. And it seems to have worked. Skolton is the first congresswoman to represent this historically Republican part of Michigan, a victory that flipped the district blue for the first time in 50 years. When the congresswoman visited Sid's high school before winter break, Sid was on hand to meet her and to talk to Skolton about one of her top priorities. As we were walking through the auditorium, she asked me, like, what do I care about right now? Like, what's something that I care about? You know, just kind of the classic, like a politician asks, you know, like, what do you want to see change? Like that kind of thing. And I brought up that our school had recently approved a few changes to the sex education curriculum that I was completely cut out of, you know, and our sex ed advisory board is supposed to include students and my school in the 12 years that we've had sex ed has never once included a student on the sex ed advisory board. And so I was just kind of describing my experience with that to her. Yeah, so I'm just really hoping to get a student on the sex ed advisory board, which unfortunately I've been told is not an option for me to do at this point because our sex ed advisory board only meets every two years. But that's something that I'm trying to change right now as well. A big thank you to our special guests, Sid Altoff, Hafiza Kalik, and Julia Cuneo from Detroit Area Youth Uniting Michigan. Believe me when I say that we will be hearing much more about them in the future. And Jack and I will be right back to talk a little more about why we're so inspired by the kids these days and to reveal the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon subscribers. Here's a hint. A certain Secretary of Education tweeted the following, quote, 
every student should have access to an education that aligns with industry demands and evolves to meet the demands of tomorrow's global workforce, end quote. And a lot of people disagreed. If you want to know more, join us in the weeds. Just go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast to become a supporter. Jeff, one thing that stood out to me so strongly as I interviewed those students was how aware they are that that they're basically backsliding, that they're losing things that their predecessors took for granted, you know, in, in areas like reproductive rights, that they feel their future being foreclosed upon. And I was wondering if this is also like is are there other moments in time where we've seen something like this that that explains sort of activism of students but also what we can expect going forward. Yeah, I think historically what you've most often seen from young people is a concern about uh, closing economic opportunities or um being recruited to fight in wars that they find to be unjust, um, as opposed to, you know, like uh, a scaling back of their rights, for instance, uh, or backsliding on, you know, what they view as moral progress. Um, that that has not tended to be the case uh, for young people, although that I would argue that they're certainly more sensitive to it because unlike their older peers, uh, you know, they don't have the same kind of historical memory. Um, it is easier for young people to see these gaps between um, what ought to be and what actually is. Whereas the older you get, right, the, the longer your memory is where you can say, you know, this, this does seem like um, two steps back, but, you know, it, it, it has come after many steps forward. Um, that's one of the things that I think explains the, you know, the growing conservatism among older people. And that's something that scholars have argued uh, is that, you know, the, the reason we see more radicalism from young people is that they tend not to care as much about where we were 20, 40, 60, or 80 years ago. Um, but in this case, I think it is really interesting that, you know, it, it's not about employment per se. Um, granted, there are a lot of pretty rotten jobs out there, but we're pretty close to full employment right now in the United States. And it's not about being recruited to fight in an unjust war. Right? We have a volunteer military and, um, you know, we have at least scaled back our uh, military campaigns. That this really is about looking around as a, at a society and asking where we're headed. Um, which again, to me, makes this kind of activism even more inspiring because it's, it's not directly self-interested, right? That it really is um, driven by these kinds of, you know, core principles that again, come out of our society, right? They're not being made up by these young people, right? These young people have said, this is what you have told us to believe. Um, what the hell is going on? Well, Jack, one of my perennial challenges on this podcast is to take whatever historical thingy you've been talking about and connect it with the future, which would be the topic we're going to be discussing in the weeds. Mm, 
Nice transition there, Jennifer. Yes. Um, so as our regular listeners know, we rely on your support through patreon.com. And if you become a supporter through Patreon, you get to join us in a special area we call In the Weeds. And today we are going to be talking about a certain quote from a certain secretary of education named Miguel Cardona. It sort of blew up the world in the days leading up to the holidays. And I think in many ways, it captures exactly a vision of the world that the students we've been hearing from are pretty united in, in rejecting. <laughs> so if this appeals to you, if you would like to know more, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast, and you'll see a list of the cool extras you can get just by throwing a few dollars our way each month. We do a custom reading list for each episode, and we go into a special area called the weeds where we talk some more. <laughs> Those of you who are looking for other ways to support the show, you of course know that there are lots of them. Uh, we are still on Twitter. Someday we may have a Mastodon account. Feel free to share the latest episode or your favorite episode, whatever social channels you're on. If you're on Twitter, tag the podcast handle at Have You Heard Pod. Uh, share episodes directly with people who you think might like them. We are still a word of mouth operation. Uh, and make sure that you are a subscriber wherever you're getting this latest episode from. Uh, I think that it helps our metrics when you automatically have the show downloaded, but it will also help you because it'll keep you from missing the latest episode. Um, and of course, we love hearing from you in the Have You Heard mailbag. We've gotten tons of great ideas for shows and we just generally like hearing that people listen. Uh, that's the greatest payment of all. On that note, I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard.